Hello, welcome back. I am back again with a lecture still on chapter 5 um, of Terry Eagleton, part 2. Um, that's what my hope is today. Now, I had planned to finish this in two lectures, but it seems like I'll only be able to deal with a certain part of the chapter today, primarily. Uh, criticisms of Freud that Eagleton talks about, and then the part where he discusses uh, Jacques Lacan. And then after that, I think I'll do a third lecture where he brings everything together and gives us an example of how psychoanalysis can be used uh, in uh, doing literary analysis. So that's my plan. Thank you so much for joining me. So uh, if uh, you have not watched part one of this lecture, just keep that in mind. Uh, we had uh, finished primarily Eagleton's discussion of Freud and some of the major concepts of Freud. And that's where we had left part one of this lecture on chapter five. And now uh, I will move into part two and I have some slides that I will be using. Uh, I'm going to make it bigger on the screen so that you can see it. And this starts like on page 140 is where he tells us, okay, here are some criticisms of Freud that come from different directions. Okay, there are problems, he says, for instance, about how it would test its doctrines about what would count as evidence for or against its claims. And that criticism comes because Freud claims that psychoanalysis is a science, right? And that it can cure people. So one of the biggest criticism that comes is, you know, how just like in scientific research, is it repeatable? Um, you know, how do, how do we know that an infant feels like that? Can we prove it? Or is it just purely theory? The, we've already talked about the emphasis on sex, and he talks what Eagleton is talking about it, and I quote, the sexist values we have touched on already are a case in point. Okay, so we already know that Freud's encounter with the psyche is mostly expressed in male terms, right? And he doesn't really give more credence to female sexuality or female psyche, and that then opens him to the charge of sexism. And what Eagleton says about him is that uh, Freud was probably no more patriarchal in attitude than most other 19th century Viennese males, but his view of women as passive, narcissistic, masochistic, and penis envying, less morally conscious than men, has been scathingly criticized by feminists. So that's one of the criticism that comes from the feminists, right? Uh, Another criticism of Freud, Freud, what he talks about is that the psychoanalysis uh, as a medical practice is a form of oppressive social control, 
labeling individuals and forcing them to conform to arbitrary arbitrary definitions of normality so part of it is that psychoanalysis has the power to label people right but then it also how do you label people you label people by by positing what is normal so as a as a discipline as a practice then it has the power to label people to differentiate them from other to decide whether or not they are normal now this is more relevant to psychiatry and not psychoanalysis because in psychiatry then uh because we rely on medicine to balance chemical imbalances so if you look at the practice in the school system putting kids on ritalin and others that it's more relevant to that where clinical psychology what it is called but it has the power to label people and define people and to some extent psychoanalysis does that too and that's one criticism that Eagleton talks about on page 141 another one what he talks about is a mere common sensical impatience how could a little girl possibly desire her father's baby right i mean these are like simplistic common sensical questions whether this is true or not it's not common sense which will allow us to decide one should remember the sheer bizarreness so what eagleton is saying these kind of criticism forget they simplify what freud is saying that that the unconscious is this uncharted bizarre unregulated space right uh, i have heard this criticism from uh, a couple of my pakistani scholar friends like when they talk about freud they are basically saying well we can't have that kind of love for the body of the mother because we are muslims and um, you know that's an absolute no no but what they are imagining is an adult person Freud isn't talking about the adult person that love for the body of the mother according to Freud happens pre-lingual stage right in infancy that is his point and when we are at that point we are neither muslims christians or anyone else but these are some of the criticism common sensical criticisms that eagleton is pointing out which sometimes are not necessarily valid because they absolutely reduce freud to a common sensical understanding of things right another criticism that he talks about uh, that freud brings everything down to sex that he is in the technical term a pansexualist right and uh, eagleton's argument is that that the seed of truth in pansexualist charges is that freud regarded sexuality as central enough to human life to provide a component for all our activities but what eagleton argues on page 141 is that that freud is more than that well he uses these psychosexual stages and terms but he is by no means reducing human beings simply to sex or to their libido another criticism of freud heard on the political left he says is that his thinking is individualistic that he substitutes private psychological causes and explanations for social and historical ones but eagleson says that's absurd right because what he says is that freud never detaches the psyche from the social 
right? And here is his response, Eagleton's. He says, what Freud produces in these deed is nothing less than a materialist theory of the making of the human subject. We come to be what we are by an interrelation of bodies, by the complex transactions which take place during infancy between our bodies and those which surround us. This is not a biological reductionism. Freud does not, of course, believe that we are nothing but our bodies or that our minds are mere reflexes of them, but that we exist in the social, right? And that's why psychoanalysis absolutely believes that outside forces impact our psyche the social has an impact on it. So that criticism that he reduces it to the private affair, also according to Eagleton, doesn't hold. And then, as promised, Eagleton moves to Lacan, right? Now, Lacan's work is complex. It's also highly contested. And I am going to admit here that other than a few you know, excerpts and some uh, explanations of Lacan, I myself have, have not read much of Lacan. I've read a lot of works, like my friend Mark Barker's, uh, who rely on Lacanian psychoanalysis. I've read, read people like Kristeva and others who build on uh, Lacan's legacy. But here, I'm just going to share with you Eagleton's explanation of Lacan, right? And he starts with this. He says, Lacan's work is strikingly original attempt to rewrite Freudianism in ways relative to all those concerned with the question of human subject. Its place in society and above all its relationship to language. This last concern is why Lacan is also of interest to literary theory because Lacan uses structuralist and post-structuralist linguistics and theory to explain the psyche, and it is that then becomes crucial in using him in literary studies because he is using the theories of language, right? What Lacan seeks to do in his book, Ecritus, is to interpret Freud in the light of structuralist and post-structuralist theories of discourse. Now, I'm hoping that you understand, by now you have watched my lectures on structuralism and post-structuralism, and you also understand Foucault's theory of discourse. If you don't, I have another brief lecture on it on my YouTube channel, you can watch it. But this, these are the reasons Lacan becomes crucial for literary scholars because of his emphasis on language theory, on definition of the sign and the differential sign, but also on the theory of discourse, right? Now, remember, uh, like there were five stages that we discussed for Freud, right? Uh, you know, the anal stage, the phallic stage. You, here, Lacan gives us, I think, three stages. The mirror stage, before the mirror stage, 
is the stage of the real right where the child is one with the body of the mother that's the only thing we have that's the biological connection and then comes a moment when the child enters the mirror stage now the mirror stage is eagleton explains it the child who is still physically uncoordinated finds reflected back to itself in the mirror a gratifyingly unified image of itself and although its relation to this image is still of an imaginary kind this is what we call the imaginary order in lacan right the image in the mirror both is and is not itself a blurring of subject and object still obtains it has begun the process of constructing constructing a center of the self so by seeing one's own image in the mirror seeing oneself as a whole right but also this other in the mirror is the mirror stage in which the child starts constructing an idea of self and as the mirror reflects a complete self right in the imaginary realm that's the lacanian imaginary the child finds his or herself as centered as a fully realized subject now the imaginary for lacan is precisely this realm of images in which we make identification but in the very act of doing so and this is eagleton i'm reading it up are led to misperceive and misrecognize ourselves what is the misrecognition we misrecognize ourselves as i right as whole as centered right as the child grows up it will continue to make such imaginary identifications with objects and this is how its ego will be built up for lacan the ego is just this narcissistic process whereby we bolster up a fictive sense of unitary selfhood by finding something in the world with which we can identify right that still is the imaginary right Ima- imaginary phase as we are considering a register of being in which there are really no more than two terms the child itself and the other body which at this point is usually the mother right this is the imaginary this is in the mirror state the figure of the father has not yet entered so the relationship is a dyad of two within which the child in the mirror stage in the imaginary finds his or herself completing an idea of self right but the relationship is still with the mother but when the father enters in the figure in the in this process the father represents the law right that's why for the phallus not literal but figurative and so eagleton calls it on page 143 the father signifies what lacan calls the law which is in the first place the social taboo on incest the child is disturbed in its libidinal relation with the mother and must begin to recognize in the figure of the father that a wider familiar and social network exists of which the child itself is only a part so as soon as the figure of the father enters right the child's relationship with the mother comes to crisis because the child starts realizing right 
that in order to move into this world this is the person the father the phallus whose law i must learn so the appearance of the father eagleton says on page 143 divides the child from the mother's body and in doing so as we have seen drives its desires underground into the unconscious in this sense the first appearance of the law and the opening up of unconscious desire occur at the same moment it is only when the child acknowledges the taboo or prohibition which the father symbolizes that it represses its guilty desire and that desire just is what it's what is called the unconscious so the moment the law of the father enters the imaginary order right the child then learns the law of the father and starts repressing things that are not permissible under the law of the father right so in the imaginary realm in the imaginary stage then a new thing is emerging and that is where things start going back into the unconscious before this the child had had no reason to suppress things right so we are moving from id to ego to the realm of the superego under the law of the father okay and the moment the child realizes this the child enters language right and when you enter language that for lacan is the symbolic order right and how does eagleton talk about it with the entry of the father the child is plunged into post structuralist anxiety it now has to grasp so shores point that identities come about only as a result of differences that one term or subject it what is what it is only by excluding another significantly the child's first discovery of sexual difference occurs at about the same time that it is discovering language itself the baby's cry is not really a sign but a signal it indicates that it is cold hungry or whatever in gaining access to language the small child unconsciously learns that a sign has meanings only by dint of its difference from other signs and learns also that a sign presupposes the absence of the object it signifies so this is lacan using Sochorian linguistic to explain the psyche but especially the unconscious the post structuralist anxieties what are those that signs have no substantial meaning that meaning is through difference that even then there is a lot of slippage all of these things in lacanian psychoanalysis is what the unconscious is right that is where things are indeterminate right um there is no final word no final signification no transcendental signified and that the symbolic order right and how does lacan then handle oedipus complex the presence of the father symbolized by the phallus figurative not literal teaches the child that it must take up a place in the family which is defined by sexual difference by exclusion it cannot be its parents love and by absent it must relinquish its earlier bond to mother's body its identity as a subject 
it comes to perceive is constituted by its relations of difference and similarity to other subjects around it. Now, this is completely structuralist. Remember when we talked about the sign system and so sure, the sign did not have its own substantial meaning. It is, if it's in a semiological chain, it is in relation to other signs. And then on a larger scale, it means something because of its difference from other signs, right? Um, so, accepting all of this, the child moves from the imaginary register into what Lacan calls the symbolic order. The pre-given structure of social and sexual roles and relation which makes up the family and society. In Freud's own term, it has successfully negotiated the painful passage through the Oedipus complex. So when in Lacan, when the child leaves the imaginary order, right, and enters the indeterminacy, the openness, the differences, right, understanding his or her gender indifference to others, right, that is when a child has successfully negotiated the Oedipus complex by accepting the law of the father, right, and moving into the symbolic order. Now, the symbolic order is symbolic because it has language. And if it has language, and that language is informed by post-structuralist and structuralist concepts of language, then we already know that it's not going to be a linear, very easy to pin down language. We are entering the realm of the language, which is the symbolic order and which has all the ramifications that we learned about the indeterminacy of signs, the sign working through systems, that there being no transcendental signified, no transcendental signifier, all of those anxieties then are part of the symbolic order. So language and symbolic order. On page 145, Eagleton explains this. The child must now resign itself to the fact that it can never have any direct access to reality, in particular to the now prohibited body of the mother. It has been banished from this full imaginary possession into the empty world of language. I'll explain that in a minute. Language is empty because it is just an endless process of difference and absence. Instead of being able to possess anything in its fullness, the child will now simply move from one signifier to another along a linguistic chain, which is potentially infinite. So the reason the child had that stability before entering the symbolic order was because it was prelingual, right? And it was based in the mirror stage with a relationship with the body of the mother. The moment the child enters the language, and it is the structuralist language and post-structuralism, then the symbolic order is the place where a child having passed into the symbolic order can never claim to have a real experience. Just as in linguistics, we learned that representations of the signs are not natural. We never really reach the real meaning of the signs, right? We always have one signification or the other. We don't really know the sign because of its essence, but because of its difference from other signs. All of those variants play a role 
in the symbolic order okay i know it's getting kind of boring but okay so in also in the imaginary order right or imaginary register the object a the big a was the body of the mother right now since the child has learned the law of the father and cannot desire it in the symbolic order then a child would constantly keep looking for something to fulfill that gap to fulfill that lack and that is what is called object small a in lacan after the oedipus crisis we will never again be able to attain this precious object a capital even though we will spend all of our lives hunting for it we have to make do instead with substitute objects what lacan calls the object with a little a we mainly try to plug the gap at the very center of our being we move among substitutes for substitutes metaphors for metaphors never able to recover the pure effective self identity and self completion which we knew in the imaginary and we knew that because our knowledge of self though imagined was not constructed by language right now this uh, here i would also like to explain uh, lacan's you know uh, concept of the lack right we need to understand it because that's what deleuze and guattari challenge this idea because he's using language wrong and what he's saying is that we move from one sign to another in a semiological chain why because we lack the next sign so it's that lack that drives us that creates the desire to move to the next significance and the next the object a the substitutes that we seek in life to replace the big a right is all because of this lack that we feel after we have left the imaginary stage and entered the symbolic order and that lack drives our quest right okay getting a bit complicated here okay so the unconscious for lacan as we have seen in our discussion of freud this is eagleton regards the unconscious as structure like language okay that's what lacan we have already established that he is structuralist and post structuralist this is not only because it works by metaphor and metonymy it is also because like language itself for the post structuralist it is composed less of signs stable meanings than of signifiers if you dream of a horse horse it is not immediately obvious what this signifies it may have many contradictory meaning it may just be one of a whole chain of signifiers with equally multiple meanings so the reason the unconscious now remember when we discussed freud we knew that the unconscious is this place without order in jumbled where things exist where our repressions exist in jumbled forms and when it gives us something in our dreams it codes it right metaphorically or gives us a symbol of something similarly here if we are going to render the unconscious as a language then it is imbued with all the problems of post structuralist linguistics right uh, slippages right indeterminacy of the signs the the 
imperfect metaphors that we use all of that for lacan is the unconscious that's why that's why the unconscious for lacan is like language right so the unconscious uh, and this is eagleton on page 146 the unconscious is just a continual movement and activity of signifiers whose signifiers are often inaccessible to us because they are repressed right think of it that way this is why lacan speaks of the unconscious as a sliding of signified signifier that we have something but what it means or what we desire has been repressed as a constant fading and evaporation of meaning a bizarre modernist text which is almost unreadable and which will certainly never yield up its final secrets to the interpretation now that's the unconscious right multiple meanings right not knowing whether we can trust what's there right whether never finding a stable meaning so think of the modernist text right ulysses right virginia woolf um you know um, many of faulkner's works right la dying is they deal with this idea one particular characteristic of a modernist text is that it doesn't promise to represent the real and it forces us to question what it is offering whether it's valid or not whether there are hidden meanings behind meanings remember ulysses joyce's ulysses has a 700 page companion book in which just explains the allusions to us right so that's this is also where eagleton has started making connections between lacan and the literary text right in the next lecture we will go there how to use okay so then in lacan on one page 146 uh eagleton also then explains what is the function of the ego the ego or consciousness can therefore only work by repressing this turbulent activity provisionally nailing down words to meanings this turbulent activity of dealing with language with multiple connotations and meanings right every now and then a word from the unconscious which i do not want insinuates itself into my discourse and this is the famous freudian slip right but for lacan all our discourse is is in a sense a slip of the tongue if the process of language is as slippery and ambiguous as he suggests we can never mean precisely what we say and never say precisely what we mean okay so the function of the ego is to give us some order right but we know that that order is artificial right that it's provisional because the way our unconscious works or the way our mind works is like language and it's the structuralist and post-socialian post-structuralist language so the function of ego is to give us some form of fictive stability right and then so there's a complex sentence on page 147 you can read it but the, what he's talking about is the in a subject of the of the enunciating the person who speaks the actual speaking writing human person can never represent himself or herself fully in what is said there is no sign which will so to speak sum up my entire being i can only 
designate myself in language by a convenient pronoun. The pronoun I stands in for the ever elusive subject, which will always slip through the nets of any particular piece of language. And this is equivalent to saying that I cannot mean and be simultaneously and be simultaneously to make this point Lacan boldly rewrites Descartes, I think, therefore I am, as I am not where I think, and I think where I am not, right? So the ego then in Lacan, if we read it through linguistics, through Saussurean linguistics and post-structuralist linguistics, right? So this identity that we take, the psyche that Masood Raja or you or I it's not a stable I. It means that I, because at that moment, within that structure of language, that is all I can be. So this whole idea that we can somehow reach a truth and represent it in the symbolic order becomes impossible because we've already learned in structuralism and post-structuralism that language can never really represent the real, right? And there is no way of accessing the real through language because language by its very nature cannot capture that, right? And so what we have then is endless chains of signifiers, right? And provisionally, at any given moment, you know, we understand each other, right? But we never take it as I have understand your stood your real essence or, or you have understood my real essence. That understanding is always based in our understanding that language is the medium that speaks through us or through which we exist and speak, right? So this is roughly up to page 147, starting from I think 141 is Eagleton's discussion of Lacan, how Lacan defines, rewrites Freud with the insights of structural and post-structural linguistics, how he gives us three stages, the mirror stage, the imaginary, and the symbol. The imaginary is the prelingual, the child in that stage has a fictive idea of a complete self, but the moment the child enters the symbolic order, that idea of the self is no longer accessible. There is always a lack and we try to fill it through substitutes, through sublimation, through seeking other objects of desire. And it's that lack that's crucial in Lacan. Now remember, Deleuze and Guattari have a lot of fun with the lack, right? And then Eagleton spends a lot of time on emphasizing how for Lacan, the structure of the unconscious is like language. Also, I mean, Lacan uses structuralism to explain pretty much everything. But for example, I've mentioned this in my classes too. Uh, he famously writes about the schizophrenia, right? And for him, a schizophrenic is someone who cannot read a semiological chain in a series because he or she keeps going here and there. And that is a linguistic representation of schizophrenia, right? So these are all some of the insights that he provides in these pages. And then he will move into 
how people have used Lacanian psychoanalysis, his theory, and Freud in reading literary texts. There are already hints here. I mean, he's talking about the way Lacan explains uh, the unconscious is very much like a modernist text, right? Indeterminate, open-ended, not giving us all the answers and absolutely not prom- promising a realistic representation of reality, right? And so in the next lecture, then, I will be finishing this series on psychoanalysis, I hope, right? And then we'll be talking about those parts of the chapter where Eagleton takes this knowledge, takes this knowledge and shows us how to apply it to literary texts. That is all I have. As always, if you have any questions, please send them my way, post them in the comments or email me, and I'll be happy to answer those. And I will soon be back with what I hope is the third and final uh, chapter or final part of this chapter. Thank you so much and see you next time. Peace and love.